We are uh, thankful to be here today. Thankful for Stephanie. Thanks for the leadership of uh, focusing on Christ and being able to sing the gospel. Nothing better that we want to do. We are very blessed here with musical talents, and we should thank the Lord for that all the time. As we uh, start our time together here in the Word, we're actually uh, going to start it. We decided on my last Sunday to let Tara preach. And uh, <laughs> since Baton Rouge is where she was considered Baptist clergy, when uh, after Hurricane Katrina hit and we, uh, I had preached the Sunday before Hurricane Katrina, I don't think I was the cause of it, but we, uh, I, we preached before and we went to Leesville to Mama's rode out the storm and then came back and we came back here and I came back to check on my good friend Dr. Jackson, Dr. Alan Jackson, who is the interim pastor here and uh, and some of you have no idea who he is and just evidence in a few years there'll be people who have no idea who I am and uh, but you'll always remember Steve Vedito because his picture is right outside my office so uh, uh, we uh, came back and we were here in the office when Christy got a call from the uh, what was then the Judson Baptist Association, what is now Bagra, that they needed uh, pastors to come and pray with people who were dying at the PMAC, is what they said. And so we, Tara and I went, and it was really funny because they gave her a tag that said Baptist clergy. And I thought, you haven't even been to seminary. Look at this. <laughs> and uh, so many Baptists would be so, uh, have so many thoughts about you being called Baptist clergy. But for the Red Cross, didn't matter to them. So... I'm going to let my co-pastor, I'm just kidding, I'm going to let Tara share a word with you. You cannot stop talking. I can't. Okay, so between sinus surgery and crying all morning, don't be surprised if snot drips as I'm talking. I just wanted to read a letter to y'all that I wrote. Dear Cross Point, in 2004, because of close friends and baby Arabella on the way, we purchased our first home at 9515 Country Lake Drive, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This is not good. I'm crying when I say Baton Rouge. After our move, Landon continued to travel and preach, teaching seminary classes and working on his Ph.D., while I continued to take care of the home and prepare for a new baby. For two years, multiple times a day, I passed the strange bubble church on Airline Highway, and I would tell Landon, that has to be such a different church. Soon our family would find out just how different Cross Point was. We would find that Cross Point Baptist Church was loving, friendly, giving to those in need, welcoming to all people, loving God's word and each other. You're doing great. This is how much I love y'all to stand up here and cry, because I do not cry. Um, <clears throat> after Landon's first sermon, lunch with the Joneses, and meeting with the search committee. This is really ridiculous. It was, <laughs> it was a no-brainer for us to say yes to the ministry at Cross Point. We fell in love with the people that went to the strange bubble church on Airline Highway, and we knew that when God sovereignly placed us around the corner from the church, he had a plan. We have so many precious memories here. In the past five and a half years. It's so silly. Okay. From being kissed by Mr. Earl to serving hot chocolate at Living Nativity, our family has felt so much love and support from you all. Please know that our move does not diminish or change how great our love is for you. Really? Do I cry like this? This is so silly. It depends on what I've done. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, I definitely don't cry over that. That's true, you generally hit. <laughs> I'll just take you out. Yes. We are praying Psalms 91.1 that you would dwell in the shelter of the Most High so that you might find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
Thanks for your grace and love towards our family during our time here and now during this transition. Although I will be home with the Bulldogs, I will never forget my Tigers. I will not be home with the Bulldogs. I will be in Hades. But (laughs) hopefully the Lord will use me as he's used other missionaries to help teach people to read first and then be able to read the word. As we start today, obviously, if this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. This is how we roll every week. Something strange covered on the back of the stage. I wasn't sure when I saw it, but I thought about how when we would do the Lord's Supper as a kid and it was covered, I always thought there was a dead body underneath it. So when I first saw that earlier, I'm not sure what it is, but that was my first thought. The very first sermon I preached here at Cross Point was from Philippians 3, and uh, I challenged you on that day. It was, I believe, on August uh, 29th, I guess, 28th, because Katrina hit that Monday, 29th. Um, And I preached in the pursuit of Christ. The very first sermon I preached to you was about the pursuit of Christ and even remember telling you, you didn't need a senior pastor to be pursuing Christ. You had all that you need in Christ to pursue Christ. And as we close our time together today, I, I know of no greater subject to call our minds and affections to today than Christ. And my greatest hope is to remind us of the gospel. We've already sung of it and uh, beg you to never sway from the gospel. If you've not read the book by Timothy Keller called Prodigal God, I would encourage you to do it. It's just an incredible small little book uh, on the gospel and really grasping the love of the Father and how uh, lavished we are. And and we focus on uh, on the younger brother who goes away, but really there are two brothers there. And as Jesus teaches, it's really a scandalous text that you can have uh, uh, wild living or you can try to earn your way to heaven both will leave you outside Uh, but the father comes to both sons and and really it is our elder brother christ who has done what the older brother failed to do in this passage in the passage of the prodigal son the older brother should have gone to get the younger brother at any expense and he failed to do that and he failed to be an example fortunately our greatest our great older brother christ did not fail and at a great expense he came to get us when we were separated and alienated And uh, as I've tried to share with you over the years, if we are going to love God passionately and others rightly, then we have to meditate on the cross constantly. And so there's nothing more than I could do than to call us to think about this. And I know uh, we're going to examine a couple texts today, and we'll be out by two, and then we'll just load the truck together. But uh, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. It's where we're going to start, and it'll be a foundational text. I know we covered it Mother's Day in some ways. We'll try to cover it in a different way. And I'm not sure that anything I'll share today will be new, but as I often tell you, we learn through repetition. And if there's anything we have to be reminded of weekly and even daily, it's the gospel. And that apart from Christ, we can do what, church? Nothing. All right, let's stand together and let's read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the other text we will examine today as support of this and what you're calling us to. But more than anything else, you're calling us to set our eyes on Jesus, to kill sin, and to keep running. So, Father, I pray that you would empower us to do this. Without Christ, we cannot. He is the vine, we are the branches, and any fruit that is born in our life is because of Christ Jesus. God, thanks for what we have been able to sing today. Thank you for Jesus who, when we were separated and estranged, he interposed his precious blood to save us. Father, thank you for the gospel. May the gospel be rich in our hearts every day so that it makes a difference in how we live. Father, we pray that this would continue to be a gospel-saturated church, that we would continue to be gospel-saturated people, and we would be those who set our eyes on Jesus, who is the one who started our faith and the one who will finish our faith and the one who is our hope for faith. Father, I pray now for your spirit, as always, to light your text up without your spirit. It's a book and it's words. Father, your spirit brings life to your word, and so, Father, anoint your word that we may uh, understand and not just learn, that we may live differently because of the truth we encounter. Father, as always, we pray for our brother and sister, our sister congregations that are around and our brother pastors that are preaching even now in this city. I pray for your spirit to anoint their preaching, to anoint your word, and that we would have pulpits that preach your word and trust you to build your church with your word. Speak to us now, Father. We need to be reminded of the hope of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, three very simple points, really, as you look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and I mentioned them in my prayer. Uh, we are being called in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 to set our eyes on Jesus, to kill sin, and to keep running. Verse 1, in particular, is challenging us to kill sin. Verse 2 tells you how you do that. You look to Jesus. And verse 3 says, if we're going to not grow weary and faint-hearted, then we're going to have to, again, set our eyes on Jesus. So really, the setting your eyes on Jesus is the key to both killing sin and persevering in the faith, the keep running, the endurance. The author of Hebrews is really upset with these that he's writing because he, he says to them, you should be teachers by now. And he's constantly writing and saying, uh, you're in danger of not running. You're in danger of bailing out. You're in danger of not enduring. And so Hebrews 11 is this incredible chapter of all those who by faith, by faith, by faith. And then I love in, in verse 2, he just calls you to say, you know who started your faith? The same one who started their faith. And he's going to finish your faith. And then he's calling us to endurance, as he says in verse 2. Uh, consider what he endured. And then verse 3, consider him who endured. There's this word again. So that, why at the end of verse 3? So that you will endure. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So let me give us a couple points. One I did not put on your outline, but here's the first one. What will cause you to stop running is not the absence of a pastor, but the presence of sin. What will cause you to stop running is not the absence of a pastor, it's the presence of sin. In verse 1, he comes to a conclusion. He's saying, therefore, he's basing it off all that's happened in, in eleven, uh, chapter 11 before that. And he, he just tells you some things. He's, he mentions early on, he takes quite a bit of time with folks early in the chapter. The guys like Jacob, guys like Abraham, guys like Moses. But in verse 32, he begins to have to do some staccato type uh, notations because he just can't give you all the, the meat of the text. 
But he says this in verse 32 of chapter 11, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might raise, rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore... Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are connected to those saints that have run before us. We are connected with those Old Testament folks who put their hope in the Messiah that was to come and in God. And he makes a conclusion and says, Therefore, as the author of Ephesians, as Paul says in Ephesians, we're being built into a, a house, into a building with these folks. And therefore, since they've run their race, run our race. They're witnesses that are cheering us on. And in the same place, if you're going to do that, then you've got to kill sin. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. How many of you know that sin clings closely? Every day it lies crouching to devour us. The world, the flesh, the devil, they never take a day off. And so neither should we in killing sin. And as I've often told you, sin that is not dealt with does not dissipate. It escalates. You may hope it goes away by ignoring it. It will not go away, friends. We must kill it. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In Romans eight thirteen. if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. Uh, so here we're being called to lay aside every weight. As you gain weight, I'll share with you for some of you who've never done that. As you gain weight, it becomes difficult to run. Uh, and I've gained a few pounds over the past year. And uh, I speak from experience here. So when I try to run every six months or so, it uh, is <laughs> intense labor. And here his point is, you know what? Whatever it is, sin and anything else that's keeping you from Christ, it will only be an encumbrance to your perseverance. Why are you running with it? Why do you keep it with you? Why aren't you laying it aside? Why aren't you dealing with the sin? If you're going to struggle, your greatest struggle will not be not having a senior pastor for a short time. It will be your own daily sin. And so, friends, if I could call you to anything, kill sin. I learned this week of, uh, of another brother pastor who uh, got connected in Facebook and met another, uh, a woman from his past, had an affair, and not only has he lost his ministry, he's lost his family. And so sin is not a trivial matter. And it's a shame when uh, we don't talk about sin, we don't push to the hope of the gospel. And this is the greatest hope. We're not being called to kill sin in our own strength. We could never do it. We're called to kill sin because of the gospel and in the hope of the gospel and in the power of Christ who has disarmed the authorities. So kill sin. The second thing, then, if we're going to do this, then we have to do verse 2, looking to Jesus. And he gives you three little things here about Jesus. He reminds you that Jesus is the one. Uh, he, he's challenged us to remember who Jesus is, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's challenged us to remember what he's done who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's challenged us to remember where he is. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So as we look to Jesus, he wants us to remember who he is, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He wants us to remember what he's done, um, the cross specifically, and then remember where he is at the right hand of the throne of God. And so there's great comfort when we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We can be reminded we didn't start this, and it's not our job to finish it. And I think about Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. This is the great hope of Romans 8, that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And this is the great hope, friends. He started it. He's going to bring it to completion, and our, our greatest hope is Christ. All we have is Christ. So remember who Jesus is and what his role is. As you look at these folks, you say, well, I don't know if I have that faith. I don't know that could be like these in Hebrews 11. He says, look to Jesus. He started your faith. He will finish your faith. Without him, you can do squat in your faith. All right? Remember what he's done, looking to the cross. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then that last part of verse 2, seated at the right hand of God, remember where he is. And as we saw last week in Colossians, as we were talking about that, when we look at Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God, it is the position of victory. And so what we can uh, know is that it's never going to be thwarted. Christ is our victor, and this is the greatest uh, hope that we have. Number two, that none is more worthy of worship. As the church at Colossae was being encouraged to worship angels, the angels don't sit at the right hand of the throne of God. Only Christ does. So Christ alone is worthy of worship. And then there's no other means of righteousness. Christ has obtained it, and we can rest in that. So then in verse 3, he says here, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so, as I've done before, here we're being called to look to Jesus, but specifically, we're being called to look to the cross. We're being called to look to the moment when Christ uh, it was our substitution, and uh, Christ died for us in, in such an incredible way. We're being called to look to the cross daily. And so what I want us to do is to pause here and go back to Matthew 27 and to consider some things. We're told to consider Jesus. This is a passage I've shared with you before, and I don't tire in sharing with you again. If you're going to kill sin, you have to look to Jesus. And where do we look to Jesus? He's telling you, look to the cross. Look specifically to the cross. And each day, if you and I would do this, it would make a difference. Back in Matthew 27... Just beginning in verse 24, it says this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I am convinced, friends, we don't think on the gospel enough. I'm convinced we don't think on the crucifixion of Christ enough. And if we're going to keep running and if we're going to kill sin, then we're being called by the author of Hebrews, though we don't know who it is. Some folks will say it's Paul. Ultimately, I say it's God. So God has written the book of Hebrews, and he says, if you're going to kill sin, then you have to look to Jesus. And if you look to Jesus, consider what he endured from others. And he says, also for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so we're being called to look to the cross. And as you look to the cross, I just want you to consider a few things. I shared these quickly at my grandmother's funeral the other day. The first one is consider his sufferings. 
I cannot read about Jesus being spit on, about Jesus being mocked, about Jesus being punched, about Jesus being stripped, about Jesus being scourged, verse 26. And you know, scourged, two soldiers on either side with a whip, ripping the flesh off of Jesus' back. And then when I read about him being brought before the whole battalion, 500 men, and trying to take in and, and meditate, I feel too often we read through a text and we don't just stop and meditate on it. We read it and we say he's brought in before the whole battalion. That's 500 men, 500 soldiers, 500 Roman soldiers that don't care about this Jew. And he's supposedly a king of them, so we're going to have some fun with this guy. And imagining that scene, and they punch him, they spit on him, they put the crown of thorns on him, they put the robe on him, and they mock him, they strike him in the head. And then they, when they have their fill of him, and of course, they could do anything but kill him at this point. Technically, they still had to get him to the cross. So when they have their fill of him, and he's already been scourged, he's already been awake all night, and he's already been deserted by all of his friends. When they have their fill of him, then they take him to be crucified. And we see that he's so weak. It says in verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. We see that Jesus, whatever they did and all that had gone on at that point, Jesus did not have the physical strength to carry the cross. They compelled Simon to do that. And they take Jesus, and it just says simply that they crucified him. And, of course, you know that spikes would have gone into closer to the wrist than the hands so that the body weight wouldn't rip through. And I've told you before, the Romans were masters at making crucifixions last longer. When they first started, they didn't put the little uh, platform at the bottom where the feet are. And folks were dying too quickly. So they realized if they put the platform, then those on the cross would push up in order to breathe and not to suffocate. And so it caused the uh, crucifixion to last longer. When they had their fill of it, they would break your bones so that you couldn't, and you would eventually suffocate. Folks will say when the cross went into the ground, you could literally hear bones being dislocated at times. We know that none of Jesus's were broken. Isaiah prophesied that 700 years before, that there, were, there would be no bones that were broken in, in, the, in the lamb. And so uh, Jesus is there and he's hanging on the cross. And, and so often when we consider the sufferings of Jesus, how will that help me? Well, that helps me not use the phrase, I'm too tired. That helps me not use the phrase, I don't feel like it. When I consider Christ's sufferings, I don't tend to ask these two questions. Is it safe? Is it comfortable? I think about uh, going to Monterey, Mexico, and going to Teocote with Crosspoint. One of my first trips with Crosspoint to Mexico. And uh, we went up in the mountains, and it was a great time. And we had uh, uh, Andrew and Jeff were there, and Michael Johns, fortunately, was overseeing to make sure I didn't cut off my hands. And the first time I used the drill, I, or the saw, he, I'm certain, was aware I had never used a saw before. And so he just cautiously watched, you know, and I'm sure was praying silently. Bruce Martin was there, and could tell you lots of good stories about oh Bruce. But uh, we, uh, I enjoyed uh, working and doing the VBS during the day. We would do construction early. We'd do VBS in the afternoon. And then what we wanted to do was to uh, hand out uh, Frisbees and things. We were trying to reach the men of Teocote because Crosspoint had yet to really reach those men. And I got to tell you, those were some tired times. I Jeff would snore at night one time. Great stories about Jeff. And then uh, 
uh, it was really cool. He was in the Yukon outside our cabana, and we could hear him snoring. And then I had this air mattress that sounded like I wrestled Shamu all night on the ground, you know. And so I have never woken up more sore because to, to build in Mexico, you have to go get the ingredients. And get the ingredients, you have to load them shovel by shovel by shovel. And then you have to unload them shovel by shovel by shovel. And then you have to move them shovel by shovel by shovel. I have never been as sore and as tired as I was. And each morning when I woke up, I was like, I can't do it. I'm paralyzed. I cannot get out of this air mattress, you know. And yet, uh, on the last night, we had been exhausted from a week. And, and yet, uh, when, you can, when you think about the sufferings of Christ, then you find in Christ the sufficient strength to play in a soccer game when you stink at soccer, when you're not good at soccer, but you find the strength to run up and down the soccer field so that eventually all those men who'd, who'd never been there before might be able to hear the gospel as it's shared. And I think about that. And so, you know, why is the author of Hebrews calling us to look to Jesus and particularly the cross? It's because when we look to that and we consider his sufferings, it crushes every bit of selfishness in us that would say, I don't feel like it. I'm tired. I don't want to do that. Is it safe? We don't ask those questions uh, when we are in light of the cross. The second thing I would have us to consider is just consider Christ's silence. I'll just take you to the passage here in, in verse 11 of Matthew 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We at Easter looked at the trials of Jesus, and you'll remember there were false witness after false witness after false witness. So friends, anytime someone lies about you, you can just know Jesus has been there before. Matter of fact, they're even seeking false testimony to crucify him, to put him on trial. And yet, as he goes through these things, he's going to be silent. The only time he's not silent is when the chief priest puts him on oath. And if he'd remained silent, he would have been guilty of lying. He is the son of God. And so he just spoke at that one point, and then the rest of the time he's silent. And I'm grateful uh, that Jesus was not about just maintaining his reputation. The biggest part for me here is he's living in submission to the plan of the Father. He knows this is the plan. He could plead his innocence, and he would win because he really was innocent. We, however, would perish in our sin had he opened his mouth and pled his case. And so I, I think that when we meditate on his silence, and particularly the submission to the Father's plan, we are compelled to do what God wants and, uh, and to follow through and understand that when this is the plan of the Father, I'm with it, as we see Jesus' example. I would cause you to consider Christ's sovereignty. The, the worst thing you can think here is that Jesus is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus is in the right place at the right time, and it's completely on purpose. And the worst thing you can think is that the Jews or Pilate or Herod took Jesus' life. No one took Jesus' life. Jesus laid down his life. This is what he says in John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And as I often think about Christ's sovereignty, and I think about these, these things, he's being stripped, he's being mocked, and you can't get any more rejected than this. Look in, look in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. 
So though Jesus is silent, the crowd is getting louder and louder. You can't be more rejected. And here he's dying for these very people. He is dying for these very people. And so when you think about his sovereignty, there's no one who deserves to be worshipped more than Christ. There's no one who deserves not to be spit on more than Christ. There's no one who deserves not to be treated in this way more than Christ. But this is where contending or thinking, considering about this about Christ helps us put rights and responsibilities in proper orders. And, and as we've considered before, we're people who are obsessed with rights in our country. We have the right to do this. We have the right to do that. Uh, and, of course, the song, you got to fight for your right to uh, write Bible study. Right. And so... Uh, You've got to fight for your rights. We are obsessed with rights. When it comes to the gospel, we should be obsessed with our responsibilities. Jesus knows that he is the only one who can be our substitute. So though he has the right to be worshipped, though he has the right not to be spit on or mocked or scourged, he also is the only one who is capable with the responsibility to be the sin bearer of the world. And so Jesus subjects his rights to his responsibilities. And if we see anything with Paul and the gospel, to the Jew, he became a Jew. To the Gentile, he was a Gentile. And to others, he became. To the weak, the weak, the strong, the strong. Never outside of Christ. Paul was free to eat a bacon biscuit, but it wouldn't get him very far with the gospel for the Jews. And so he was willing to subject his right for the gospel responsibility. And so we would say, well, I have the right to dress to express myself. Little young ladies or older ladies that dress like young ladies. I would say to you, dear sister, you have the responsibility to dress for Christ. As men, and we keep seeing these, Byron and I have decided in light of this last pastor who had an affair, Byron and I are going to start a ministry called Pants Up for Ministers and so that we can at least have something that would help these guys get it, you know. And so we would say, well, I have the right to satisfy my urges. No, you have the responsibility to honor Christ with every urge and every craving and to bring those rights under the gospel responsibilities that we have. And so here, friends, when I meditate on the fact that Jesus laid down his life, when I consider his sovereignty, it helps me prioritize rights and responsibilities in the day and put them in a proper order that I may live the gospel. You've never heard me say this, but I would ask you to consider Christ's substitution. I realize this is the first Sunday I've ever used the word substitution or substitutionary atonement, but I just thought better than ever, right? Better late than never. I'm just kidding. If you've been around for three minutes, then you should have heard me talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ because we should never take that lightly. We don't see it here in the passage, but if you hold your place and turn to Luke 23, uh, there is a criminal that the crowd, the chief priests, are kind of wanting to be set free. Do you remember his name? What was his name? Barabbas, right, all right? And Matthew doesn't tell us a lot about Barabbas, but Luke does, and Luke wants to make sure we get it. In Luke 23, beginning in verse 18, it says this, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him, release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man, and here's the second time he says it, who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So Luke tells you twice, Barabbas is in prison because he killed somebody, and he started a riot. He was rebelling against the authorities. How many of you think that Barabbas was guilty? 
I think he was. How many of you think that Jesus was actually innocent? There weren't any sins against him. And so here is my favorite picture of substitution. Barabbas is guilty, and Barabbas gets to go free. Jesus is innocent, and he's going to receive the capital punishment. Friends, this is the gospel, and I'm Barabbas. This is substitution right here in the events of the cross. And if there's anything the Bible's about, it's about substitution. Do you remember Adam and Eve when God clothed them? What did God clothe them with? Was it fig leaves? No, they clothed themselves with fig leaves. What did God clothe them with? Skins of animals. Where did God get the skins of those animals? Does anyone remember? They died. He killed them. He took the life of those animals instead of on that day taking Adam and Eve's life. As you move forward, as we often have considered, in Egypt, in the night of the Passover, Israel's greatest problem is not the Egyptians. Israel's greatest problem is not slavery on the night of the Passover. Israel's greatest problem that night is their own sin and God coming into town. And so he makes a way for them to be safe. What is it, church? What did he give them? The lamb, right? And what were they to do with the lamb's blood? They were to spread it where? Over the doorposts. And then they were to stay behind it. And see, this is the same faith that we have. The same faith they had in the blood of that lamb is the same faith that we stay behind the door all night too until Christ comes to get us. And they stayed behind. And so the next day, there was a death in every home, both Egyptian and Israelite. It's just for the Egyptians, it was their firstborn son. For the Israelites, it was a lamb that was dead so that they could hold their son. I often uh, think, and we know that the sacrificial system was insufficient uh, because Christ had to come, but I think if we were still engaged in the sacrificial system and we had to put our hand on that animal as they had to do in Leviticus, I think it would cause us to pause a little more about sin each day. I think it would cause us to pause as we would see that this animal is having its throat slit because I chose disobedience, because I chose rebellion. And so this animal is my substitute, and so I live, but this animal dies today because of my sin. And as you move forward, obviously, we get to the greatest substitute, and John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is preaching one day, and he sees Jesus walking along, and he just says simply, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you see that, you shouldn't think just cuddly, cute, white, fluffy, cotton ball lamb. That's not what John means. John means innocent, pure, to the slaughter, lamb. Why? To take away the sin of the world. And so when we consider what we see here in substitution, Barabbas is being set free. Christ is going to be put to death. There's a couple things that uh, should spur us on. First, friends, we should see how much God hates sin. God hates sin so much that when it was laid on his son, he didn't give his son a free pass. He punished his son, giving him the full wrath of a holy justice that is deserved at sin. So you should bear in mind, in this room today, if you do not flee to Christ, God hates your sin that much too. And he will bear, you will bear the full penalty of it. And so we should see in here God's hatred for sin, but God's love for sinners and that he makes a way. He provides a substitute. And the worst part, this is the worst part of the cross. You know, people talk about hell and the fire and, you know, we had good revival, hellfire and brimstone preachers. Hell, the worst part is not going to be the fire. The worst part will be God's wrath. And so it is so awful that Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, friends, we shouldn't just move past those words. We should let them soak over us. Because for those who spend eternity separated from God, 
they will experience what Jesus is crying out on the cross of abandonment and forsakenness. And perhaps meditating on that would compel us to share the gospel tomorrow with those we work with. Perhaps tonight with our neighbors when we think about the forsakenness. Or perhaps in this room when you think about the forsakenness and abandonment. Christ is telling you what it's like when wrath is poured into you and the experience of it. So flee to Christ. As Paul says, we beg you to be reconciled to God even today. And here uh, we see that it's the, the, worst, the worst part of the cross is right here, the substitution. But there's one more thing that I would uh, say in here too. Is nowhere uh, like the cross do we see God's devotion to us. The cross is the clearest devotion to us. And what you can know uh, is you are noticed. We live in a world that wants to have a ton of Twitter followers. They want to have a ton of people who follow them on Facebook. We want people to know who we are, these sorts of things. Friends, you can know this. In the cross, you've been noticed by the one who matters more than anything else. And in his arms, you find security. I think about when Tara's best friend was married. On the night of their wedding rehearsal, uh, her future husband got up and, and said to her, to his future father-in-law, he said, because she found security in your arms, she hasn't looked for it in the arms of any other guy. And here, as we see what God does for us, we find no greater arms to be secure in. You are loved. You are cared about. He does know your name. And there's no greater hope for us. It also means this, too. You know, friends, cancer is, is going to come. Car wrecks are going to come. Uh, house fires are going to come. But whatever comes, you can know this as you consider the cross and Christ's substitution. The worst thing you could ever experience, God's wrath, has already been taken for you. So everything else, he will be sufficient to, to carry you through. This is the great hope of the cross. I tell you and I beg you, if we would look to Jesus and look to the cross, it would make a difference in every day. It would make a difference in every day. When we are engaging in sin and when we are cold, it's not Jesus' fault. We have all we need for life and godliness is what Peter says. So then, friends, let's consider the last part then, Christ's sufficiency. Do you remember when Jesus cried out? Matthew just says that he cried out with a loud cry in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There in verse 50 of Matthew 27. He doesn't tell us what he cries. We know that he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus also says something else that's very important for us. It's three little words. It is what? Finished. And that's why Paul can write in Romans 8.1 and Dr. David recently or or Mr. Al, I can't remember who, one of them, them shared from Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we're members of church? No. Why? Because we go on mission trips? Why? Because we put a water well in in Uganda? Why? Because we memorize scripture? No. Because Christ achieved all we needed on the cross, and it is sufficient. And so there's some of us who still carry guilt, whether it's from high school or from college. Friend, don't miss what you sung in it as well. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. And this frees us to love sinners because our sin, all of it, has been nailed to the cross. And so any of you who are here carrying guilt from that, friend, it has been atoned for. You have been set free from that. And then don't try to add anything to this work. Rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Never shift to a gospel that says, I have to earn this. I have to do this. 
rest in the words of Christ that says it's finished. It's finished. He's accomplished it. And in the theological terms, his righteousness has been imputed to us. So how many of you think if we were to consider some of these things each day, it would make a difference? It would make a difference. So we should consider it. And he tells you why. Back in Hebrews 12, he says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And as we kind of move to close our, our time here, I want us to consider a, a passage, Acts chapter 20. It is also a passage that I've shared with you often. This is the best day ever. I get to pe- preach three passages. And if you don't like it, you can email Al and Tim. Acts chapter 20. I've shared with you before about, about Bill Wallace and how I've always been challenged. He was a medical doctor, gave his life in Wuchow, China. And the people there of, of China actually uh, marked on his grave just the words, to live as Christ, to live as Christ. And if there's anyone who embodied that, was Paul. And if there's anyone who considered the gospel and it made a difference in his life, it was Paul. It was Paul. And I would challenge us as we transition now to Acts 20, to say because of the gospel, there are some things that should be true of us. If we're going to endure, then what does endurance look like? What should that look like? We're being called to persevere and endure in Hebrews. And because of the gospel, what should that look like? And Paul gives us a picture of that in Acts 20. I just want to read beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And I've put on your outline there just four reminders. Because of the gospel and light of the gospel, these things should be true of us. Paul is leaving a church that he loves very much. He spent uh, close to three years with the church at Ephesus. And uh, he is now being compelled to go back to Jerusalem. Paul is eventually going to go from Jerusalem to Rome. And Paul will eventually be put to death in Rome at some point. Uh, what we know is instead of going all the way back to Ephesus, he asked the leaders of that church to come meet with him in Miletus, and he has one final powwow with them, one final powerful moment of just sharing with them, encouraging them, and we'll see the rest of the chapter in just a moment. But let me give you these four reminders, and these are four things that should be true of us when we leave a church, when we leave a job, when we graduate from high school, when we graduate from college, particularly when we leave this life because of the gospel. If we consider Jesus, we set our eyes on Jesus every day that we're called to in Hebrews 12, then these things should be true of us. The very first one is that we live Christ. Paul says in verse 18, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Friends, if we cannot say, as Paul says, what you've seen and heard in me, do that, and you'll be following Christ, if we can't say that, then something is wrong. Something is wrong about us. We should be able to point to our life as a piece of the gospel. 
And here's where we easily say, oh, man, my mistakes are before me. This isn't perfection. It's not about perfection. But it is about the constant fighting for joy, fighting for sanctification as we engage with Christ day by day by day. And he just says, you yourselves know how I live. That's what he begins with. He's like, remember that cool sermon I did? No, that's not where he starts. He says, remember what I lived? And he tells you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, consistency. How could we be consistent? I've got an idea. Consider the gospel every day. All right? How could I be consistent from the first time to the last? Consider the gospel every day and multiple times through the day. This is how you can be consistent. And he just lets you know, what did he mean by living? Verse 19, he meant serving the Lord. And then he gives you three withs as he served the Lord. With humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How many of you want those last two T's, tears and trials? And you're like, yes, Lord. I haven't had tears and trials in a while. Could you bless me with those this week, please? Thank you. Here's I love. Paul isn't talking about being consistent in the good times. Friends, he's talking about being consistent even in the wretched times. The world will not be impressed if we are solid in just the sweet times of life. So are they. It's when our heart is ripped out and when there are tears and when there are trials and yet they see the steadfastness. They may see tears too. He had tears, but he remained consistent in Christ. And so the question is, even in the trials, can the world see Christ in us? And when you think about a couple of these things, I, I would be challenged. Humility, I love that Paul always knew it was Jesus that saved him. Paul never saved himself. And there's an incredible humility that is able to be kept when you keep that in order. I love that Paul was content with whatever the Lord wanted to give him. Whatsoever place I find myself, there will I be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There was a humility about Paul. There were tears. I love that Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, even now I write with tears because they're enemies to the cross of Christ. I love that Paul wrote in Romans 8 and said, we can't be separated from Christ. And he moves right into Romans 9 and says, but my people are, and I would be cut off for them. And I love that he had tears to enemies of the cross. I see so much in our evangelical, and I just see anger. I don't see tears for lostness and brokenness. And so as he's here, he's weeping. And then he has trials. And you know who gives him the most grief? The people he's trying to see come to Christ. And it doesn't deter him. I love, as we see Paul in Acts, he gets drug out of the city, right, and stoned. And then what's he do? He gets up and walks right back in that city. And then he goes on to the next city. He doesn't take a day off. It says he preached the gospel. And then he even came back through all of those cities. And these are the people who are giving him trials, and yet he still wants to give them the gospel. Friends, because of the gospel, we can treat people not as they treat us, but as Christ has treated us. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so we ought to be able to say, because of the gospel, we live Jesus. We live Jesus. Number two, we teach Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We preach Jesus. This is what he says in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've told you often before, what does he proclaim? Well, literally everything. He says anything that was profitable. But the last verse that I read to you from verse 27, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he says specifically the gospel. I gave you the gospel. Where in 21? He says, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's just a couple things that I would say to you. God doesn't just expect your next pastor to give Baton Rouge the whole counsel of God. God expects you to give Baton Rouge the whole counsel of God. And do you know how you come to know the whole counsel of God? You actually study the word of God and you memorize the word of God. And studying is different than reading. 
studying is different than reading. But if you're not even reading, just start there. Start there. But if you're, if you're just reading, move to studying. Move to meditate and study the whole counsel. There's not a single thing in the Old Testament that's bad for us to study. There's not a single thing in the New Testament that's bad for us to study. It's all useful for equipping us. And so if you're going to know the whole counsel, it's not just the guy who comes with a seminary certificate that's required to do that. We preach Christ. And from the Old Testament or the New Testament, we proclaim Christ. That's why we had an equipping class on the big picture of the Bible so that those of you who stuck through it all the way through, all five of us, you could see the big picture and how it points to Christ and the kingdom of God. He is the point of Scripture. And we should be able to articulate this. Why? Because there's no other substitute. Muhammad was not a substitute. Confucius was not a substitute. Being a really good Eagle Scout will not get you into heaven. So the only hope from saving people from sin and the only hope from bringing people from death to life is the gospel of Christ. And that's why we proclaim it. And who do we proclaim it to? Everybody, Jews and Greeks, people at Walmart, people at Taco Bell. I go there often, people wherever. We proclaim it to everyone we see, and we see them all as candidates for the gospel. To some will be the aroma of life. To some will be the aroma of death. But we don't determine that, but we share with all of them. And where do we do it? He says everywhere teaching you in public and from house to house. And I love that phrase, house to house. And once again, those of you who think you're too wretched, do you remember who used to go house to house persecuting people? This guy. But now because of the gospel, he has been transformed and he's going house to house studying Bible scrolls. Isn't it incredible? This is the gospel and this is the change that's brought about. And so we're not too wretched. We are new. The old is gone. And those are imperfect tenses. It's forever gone. The new is here. We're new creations and we are ambassadors for Christ as though he's making his appeal through us. How's he doing? How's he doing through us? Are we preaching Christ from the words, the words of the mouth? They come from the overflow of the heart. And if the whole counsel is not in the heart, it's most likely the whole counsel will not come out of your mouth. So if the gospel is not rich in your heart, it's most likely the gospel will not come out of your mouth that day. We live Christ, we preach Christ, we teach Christ. Number three, quickly, we follow Christ anywhere. He says in verse 22, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. There are two things here. There's, first of all, Paul's sensitivity to the Spirit, and second, his willingness to suffer. He says in 22, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. He knows this is what's next for him. It wasn't to go back to Ephesus and stay with them. He knows this is the journey that's for him. And people along the way are going to try to talk him out of it. But he knows this is what the Spirit is telling him. I would remind you, in, in a world of uh, a lot of charismatic things or, or other, other ways, this is the clearest way God speaks to us. The clearest way God speaks is through his word. And yes, he gives us impressions. And yes, he gives us uh, guidance or burdens. But the clearest way those are affirmed is through the Spirit using his word. That's why Jim Elliot went to South America because of a verse from Exodus. That's why David Livingston quit running in Africa one day because of Matthew 28, 20. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why Claire Barton started the Red Cross because of 1 John 4. And so you see, friends, the clearest way you can know if he's speaking to you, be in his word. And then when he speaks to you, whatever he calls you to, be willing to do it. Be willing to do it. This is why meditating on the suffering is important because Paul says, I don't know much about my itinerary, but it says this, in every city I'm going to be in prison and I'm going to get beat. So at least I'll have a place to stay, you know? So uh, I know that there's some of us, if this was the itinerary we received from the Lord, there's some of us that would say, you must have meant to send this someone else. 
Uh, I don't. I this. I don't know how this ended up in my inbox. Is this junk mail? My filter is not working. And so here, you know, when you meditate on the cross and imprisoned and affliction, that's what you need, Jesus. You will be with me. You will help me. You will give me all I need to be faithful to you in prison and affliction. And so a willingness even to suffer. And I've shared, shared with you missionary story after missionary story. John Patton burying his wife and newborn son with his bare hands on the island of New Hebrides for the sake of the gospel. How many children did Adoniram Judson bury in Burma for the sake of the gospel? How many times do we see this? And most of us are not going to be called to lay down our life. Maybe it is rejection here more and more in this very secular society that we live in. Whatever God calls us, may we be willing to suffer. What will give you the obedience and the unction is considering the cross of Christ. And then it motivates you to follow him anywhere. I want to say a word here. Uh, when we felt called to trace crossing in Tupelo, uh, I found myself, we were contacted by six different churches last year. And we journeyed in different ways with them and and the door would just shut either for theological reasons or eschatological reasons. I just trusted the Lord's providence in all of those things. And uh, when it came to this church, I found myself willing to follow Jesus to Pakistan, but not necessarily wanting to go to Tupelo. I really don't re look forward to being in a place that has so much SEC mixture. I really like purple and gold everywhere down here, you know. The one time I was in the mall in Tupelo, there was one older man in an LSU shirt, and I was like a magnet on him. I was like, let's sit down and talk. How are you? You know? And uh, I thought about, you know, it's taking us uh, almost six years to get to the point where we are, and the, start, the thought of starting over with new people, and I don't know their names, and I don't know what's going on, and I know it's going to take a while to figure out who's who and who's not and all of these things. And, and I found myself saying to Jesus, Lord, if you want us to move our kids to Pakistan, awesome. Tupelo, mm, I don't really want to follow you. And it would be meditating on a passage like this that compelled me. Am I really willing to follow everywhere or not? And one of the things that when we meditate on the gospel, it really crushes the line that we draw that says, I'll go here but not here. It really crushes the box. And when we see what Jesus was willing to go through, then we say, I'm willing to follow you wherever you want me to go. And he confirms that his peace guards our hearts and our minds, and he speaks clearest through his word. And so I would challenge us, because of the gospel, we are able to follow Christ everywhere, anywhere he wants. Prison and affliction, okay. Here's the key to it as I close out this text. 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, the key to this is that we love Christ more than we love ourselves. That's the key, loving Christ. If you are still your treasure you will not run very well for Christ. If stuff is still your treasure, you will not run very well for Christ. But if Christ is your treasure, the gospel has sunk in, and you run, and you don't even count your life as most precious. And that's what Paul says. My life isn't most important. Finishing the race for the gospel of God is most important. And we know that Paul did that. Tradition tells us that he was beheaded, that his, uh, he ran to the stump and embraced it. And I've often thought about that. Why would Paul run to the stump and embrace it? Well, he'd finished his race. He'd run the part that was marked out for him. And so to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is never bad for the believer. To die is incredible. To depart is to be with Christ. And he says it's far better. But we want to be those who this world can clearly see. We don't love us more than we love Christ. We love Christ most.
And the way you get there is when you meditate on the gospel and this unbelievable love of the Father to people who are wretched and alienated and hostile toward him, and he still comes and gets us and pays the bill for it, how can we not love? I can't help but love and love him more than I love me. That's the key. Well, as Acts 20 closes, this is what it says. He says that in 28, and I would just read these words to us. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the elders now to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There's the sacrifice again. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I got to tell you, every time I read this passage, I'm not comforted much. Because Paul has pastored these folks for three years, and he says there are going to be people outside and inside that raise up and try to destroy stuff. And so as a pastor, sometimes you can feel like, man, that stinks. You You preach faithfully, you give them the word, and there's still these wolves that want to come and destroy. But the key is the word, and this is what he's going to commend to them and what I commend to you. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not see Snyder Day to admonish everyone with tears, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so he commends to them the word. And that's all I can say, friend. When we give the truth, people recognize junk. And they recognize lies. And then the last part always grips me. It says in verse 36, And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he'd spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when he'd parted from them, and the word parted there literally means when he was ripped from them, they set sail. They set sail. As I close, I've already commended to you Philippians 1, and I thank my God for you. Every time I remember you, remembering all of you with joy. That he who began this work will bring it to completion, and I know no greater prayer for you than 9 through 11, that you would increase in the knowledge of God, abounding more and more in depth and insight, and particularly as this day approaches, that you would stand and not, not be ashamed. But when I think of Crosspoint, there are a couple things I just want to share in closing. Uh, and there, there, there will be some of you that perhaps are not on this list. That's a problem when you get specific, and I apologize for that. It's, it's not intentional. No one has been left out intentionally. And, uh, again, you can, you, actually, you can send this email to me, and I'll delete it. But uh, when I think of Crosspoint, I will think of our first lunch with Al and Mary Gaden and how we love these good folk in Mississippi who never said a word about the senior pastor position just sat through lunch with us the whole time and just talked and chatted and I thought it was the most awkward thing ever and but we enjoyed them and fell in love with them first they were the first gateway for us here and we fell in love with them immediately I will think of my first and my next 1,000 kisses from Mr. Earl of which I've received several today already I will think of I will think of Doc's faithful devotion to Miss Laverne. And how Doc has been an example for me of in sickness and in health. 
and how to faithfully care for a wife and his devotion to our two-year-olds. There's nothing more blessed than to have a man in his 80s who gets down on the floor every week with two-year-olds. I will think of Mr. Richard saying, we've never done it that way before. Let's try. Do you know how freeing that is? I have so many friends that after their first pastorate, they're not in ministry anymore. And do you know how freeing it is to have senior adults who don't argue over which seat they're going to sit in on the way to Branson, but to have senior adults who serve and are willing to try something new? I will think constantly of, I will think of Mr. Charles constantly pushing me to finish my paper. And in my dissertation, I have a line dedicated to Mr. Charles because he pushed me over and over. You've got to finish your paper. We'd finish a service, and he'd be like, you've got to finish your paper. We'd finish a management team meeting. Of course, when Mr. Charles ran, there were 30 minutes, but we would finish it, and you've got to finish your paper. I will think of all the hugs from Terry Moore and the reminder that just because some people bamboozle you does not mean you shouldn't help all the others. The good wisdom from Terry. I would think of when Andrew Brennan came to Christ. And the first time he and Jeff participated in a worship service in Mexico. And all the sweet times with those friends. I'll think of my friendship with Ben Jones and the fruit of Christ that's evident in his life. I'll think of the home group we led with Chuck and Rachel Gross and the friendship that escalated from that point forward. I'll think of how the Whitsons never failed to be prepared and love on our preschoolers. I'll think of Clay Dixon's quick wit and the Prawlings and Clay's mentoring of Jerry Passman in the preparation of snacks for the preschool. I love seeing Mr. Jerry in there every week. I will think of Gay Ann's tenacity with regard to seeing preschoolers and their parents taught about Christ and her memorization of Scripture. I will think of all the yards we cleaned and trees we cut after Gustav and having worship under the awning. I think of how the Lord allowed us to finish the second floor of the Children's Education Building and to do so without going into debt and how many lessons of Christ have been taught on that floor both to the children and to our ESL participants, and all the scripture that's written underneath that floor that we put up there, and God's faithful provision to already have the building fund more than what it was when we started that project. There's no one to point to but God. I would think about how in almost six years of church votes, we've only had seven no votes total in the time that we've presented all these things to you year after year after year. You know what a blessing that is? I will think of a water well and a roof in Bugiri. I will think of a seminary who trains students from nine nations because of our help in Jinja, Uganda. I will think of baskets from Rwanda and families praying over their offering. I will think of when Brandy Balmer came from China and said, I met this guy, and now we have met their baby. I will think of the first time I picked Gordon up, walking on... Highland Road, only to come home and to hear Tara say, I picked that guy up before. And what a special friend Gordon has been. He is Uncle Gordon to our children. And how every time he's walked to our house, 
we are excited to see him. I will think of the first time we all met Connor Robertson when Rick and Cherie brought him home. I will think of Jim Shove leaving the business world to enter to a public school to teach for the sake of Christ. I will think of all the encouraging cards from Miss Pat Ray and Sonia Kelly. And I have them all. I packed them for the day that I have to open that box and read it. I will think of all Miss Linda has done to show love to me and my family. I can't tell you the number of little gifts Miss Linda has given our kids and the countless ways she's trying to help me be a better pastor. I will think of Aunt Maddie's great organizational skills and all the ways Carl and Billy have blessed us. I will think of all the behind the scenes things that Christy Campbell has done over the years to help pull off so many functions here that no one knows about. I will think of the tireless service of David and Martha Morrison who've served in more ways and areas than I can list in one sentence. I will think of how in the midst of great pain, William and Valerie Cook started a miscarriage ministry that still blesses others who experience that great season of grief. I will think of Jason and Chantel's steadfastness and faithfulness. I will think of Haley teaching children scripture in the Philippines. I will think of Gary Cook's helping with so many things, particularly the baptistry, and Miss Sharon Cook's initial question, is there something we could do to help Grace Baptist Church? I will think of Chris Fontenot's stories of preaching to people standing in the Department of Motor Vehicle line who can't go anywhere in the mornings, and they're stuck, and he just lights them up. I will think of all my lunches with Don Watling, particularly since he paid for all of them, I'm sure. I will think of all the Sunday school lessons I've been taught by Miss Patsy Earnhardt. I will think of fellows at five, equipping classes, book-by-book study of the Word on Sunday mornings. I will think of how much Lee and Stacy Green's friendship has come to mean to me over the years. I will think of when Mary Ashton Campbell felt a call to missions and how Jay Curry feels a call to translate the scriptures for a people group and the number of students we have supported and, to continue, and continue to support in seminary. I will think of all of you who I will still be praying for your spouse to come to Christ or your child to come to Christ or the countless other burdens we've shared in prayer. I will think of all the times my grandmother told me she was praying for my church to love me and for me to love them. I will think of your patience with a young pastor who was still finding his way in convictions. I will think of all my mistakes, and there have been many. I will think of all God has done to produce fruit through his spirit and his word and his faithfulness to build his church. I will think of our partnership in the gospel. And I will think of what a blessing you're going to be to the next pastor and continue to be to this city. So from the very depths of my heart, 
I'm thankful in God's providence for Al Jones keeping a resume. I'm thankful for the spiritual leadership to bring it back out. I'm thankful in his providence. We moved into a neighborhood two years before we would pastor here. And I'm thankful you have been a church that has been so loving and easy to love. And such a great experience. And as I go and listen to all these other guys, I'm so grateful for you. And we will miss you much. And we will need you. We hope to be able to still be there for you in the times that arise. Should you call us or email us or just feel like driving six hours. And so thank you for loving our children. Thank you for all that you've taught them, Miss Charlotte. Thank you for all that you have done for our family every year. And thank you for the privilege to serve here. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll transition. Stephanie, we'll just transition on to Kevin and whatever's next, our announcements, and then we will uh, close out our service from there. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ Jesus. And we thank you that in... Uh, final time together to be able to look in your word, to be able to look at Christ and the gospel and to see him. And Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to set our eyes on Jesus each day. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at your right hand. And so, Father, there he sits, Christ our victor. No one will ever sit in a greater position. No one will ever thwart that. So all we need for righteousness, he has already obtained. So, Father, we beg that our hearts would just be gospel-saturated. Thank you for a sweet chapter together. Thank you that in your great providence you have given us these times. Father, I pray for the days that are ahead, and I pray they would be sweet days for Crosspoint. I pray that they would continue in the truth. They would continue to grow. They would continue to spur one another to love and good works. They would continue to remind each other daily of the deceitfulness of sin. And Father, I pray that you would increase them in wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that they may walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. Father, would you strengthen them with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy? And would you help them to be those who give thanks to you for having qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, to be thankful for transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. And Father, I pray as Tara and I and the children move to an assignment, Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We will continue to need our partners in the gospel, as Paul would often write to and have fellowship with. We will need our partners in the gospel here. And we pray for your great provision there. We pray for the gospel to advance in us and through us to that city, and even from there to the nations. Father, we are grateful for Christ. We're grateful for the day that we will one day be together with Christ, and there will be no more sin. And there will be no more tears. And there will be no more hunger or thirst. But Christ will be our good shepherd. The lamb will be our shepherd. And we will dwell with you always. 
And your word says to encourage one another with these words. And so, Father, we long for that day, and we realize we are one day closer to that day today than we were yesterday, and we are one week closer today than we were last week. So, Father, would you help us then to therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain? Father, would you help us to go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in your name, the name of the Son, the name of the Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. Father, we are grateful for this time, this day, and for the gospel. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.